But so for this Sunday, we are walking into the Gospel of Mark, and we're turning to chapter 4 and reading 1 through 20. And if you have grown up in the church, this is a very familiar parable, a very familiar story. So let's see if we can hear it with new ears. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Mark 4, starting at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And Jesus taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came, ate it right up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. An other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. And still other seed, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and others around him asked him about the parables. And Jesus told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, they hear the word and at once receive it with great joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And then when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, 
and then produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I read an article this past month written by Paul Kings North. He uh, is a successful novelist who wins awards and book deals quite easily. But the article that I was reading was actually about when he grew up in the UK back in the 1980s. He was a bored teenager at that time, suffering through the local vicar's dusty, boring sermon at a weekly school chapel. On the way home from this particular school chapel, Paul and a few classmates stopped by the local parish church. It was a medieval stone building, visible from most parts of the town. And they stopped, not to talk with the vicar. (laughs) They heard enough of him earlier that day. Not to light a candle in memory of someone or in prayer. Not to sit in the quiet cool of the church building they went in to sign the guest book. Paul doesn't remember whose idea it was at the time, though he thinks it was probably his. But he was the one to pick up the pen right there next to the guest book and write under comments like, what a beautiful building, and I feel a tremendous sense of peace when I am here Paul scrawled in very large letters, I will destroy you all. In all of your works, victory is mine, signed Satan. This group of 15-year-olds thought this was a whole lot of fun. And so they kept coming back until Satan had visited this church quite a few times. And more or less the comments we're always kind of in the same vein. All caps, large scrawls, Satan. Until one day uh, they showed up, and someone, I'm going to assume it was the vicar, had whited out all of their comments. It took a lot of white out. And there was no longer a pen laid out by the guest book. And that was as much as it went. And so they kind of shrugged their shoulders, they had their fun, and they went off to the video shop because that was still a thing in the 1980s. Paul outgrew his desire to walk into churches and pen notes from Satan and church's guest books. But he grew up into a devout atheist who didn't really have much space or time for church or Jesus or whatever that dusty sermon from the vicar in a school chapel was about. Now, ghostwriting as Satan is probably pretty unique to Paul. That takes a particular kind of imagination and guts. But Paul's story of dismissing faith, of walking away from church, that's not terribly unique. Most of us know and love family, friends, siblings, children, 
for whom faith never quite took, never quite grew. And I think we tend to think this is a modern malady, (laughs) a particular crisis of our time, new to this kind of postmodern, post-Christian culture we live in. But that's also not really true. The church has always wrestled with why some people believe and others don't. Why some folks hear Jesus' words and, and say, yes, that is deeply true. And others can hear the same words and go, oh, that's okay for you. Where we join the story in Mark, Jesus has just come off of very, a few very intense encounters with people who simply do not believe that he is who he says he is. Uh, the religious leaders, just in the previous chapter, the religious leaders, after a few encounters with Jesus, were already plotting with the local government officials to kill him after they heard what he had to say. Religious scholars were coming from the big seminaries and and universities in Jerusalem to hear this new teacher, and after a few encounters with him, they determined, uh, well, that man's possessed by Satan. (laughs) And then, in the previous chapter, his own family comes to him. Mary, his brothers. And and they, they come to him not to hear what he has to say, but, you know, to quietly collect him and bring him home to stop him from embarrassing himself further and embarrassing them more. And then our story picks up with Jesus addressing a crowd who's come to hear his teaching, who have flooded the water's edge so much that he has to push off in a boat not to be crushed by them. And against that background of those rejections to this crowd, Jesus tells a story of soil and seeds and growing things. And those in that crowd who gathered to hear Jesus, they walked away from this parable, from his words, and some quickly forgot what he said. (laughs) It was just a way to spend an afternoon. They went home and had to think about their grocery list and what to make for supper, and the words just flew right out. And others really liked what Jesus had to say. They got excited enough to kind of take home his teachings, tell their family and friends, until they met the skepticism of their family and friends, maybe even their laughter, and they didn't quite know what to do with that, and their faith just wilted right there and then. Couldn't quite take the dismissiveness. Then others considered following Jesus. But then they looked at the lives of those closest to him, his disciples, and they kind of said, well, I like my house. I like my career. My future looks pretty good. And while the words that Jesus is saying sound pretty good, I mean, they're not that good. And then out of a crowd that filled up a shore There was a few who walked away from his teaching, from his presence, 
with something taking root deep in their souls. A stirring of something true, of something profoundly good. And a seed began to grow. Afterwards, when the crowd had dispersed, and Jesus was alone with his disciples and a few others, they asked him, can you, can you explain that to us? And Jesus looks at them and says, wait, 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 don't you understand the parable? And you can almost hear the exasperation in the voice of Jesus as he parses out each part of the parable. The farmer sows the word. It's kind of like when someone doesn't get a joke and then you have to explain the joke and you kill the joke by telling the joke and unpacking it. It just takes all the, just all the fun out of it. But I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. They at least knew to ask when they didn't get something and to admit it. Us, on the other hand, We've heard this parable a lot. <laughs> We're quite familiar with it. And of course we understand this parable. We don't even really need Jesus' explanation to the disciples. We, we kind of picked it up the first time around. But this parable gets preached in so many different ways. Some stress the condition of the soil... So the answer as to why some people believe in Jesus and others who don't, it's simple. It's the soil. Tend the garden of your soul. That is literally a sermon I read this past week. Tend the garden of your soul and make ready for the word of God. That's solid. But in this reading, the reason why some don't believe in Jesus is because they haven't prepared their hearts enough. So it's on you, <laughs> get to work. Tend that soul of your garden so the word can take root. It's on you. And then others stress the kind of erratic sowing of the sower. <laughs> no farmer is going to just kind of scatter seed like that, spreading seed all over the place. It's like as if you took your John Deere down the road and instead of like putting the seed out the back, on the soil, on the field, you're actually just doing it on the road on your way to the field. It makes no sense. And so others stress the erratic sowing of the sower. It doesn't matter if some of it doesn't take root, because at the end of the parable, right, the ones that do have such a harvest, such an abundance, that it doesn't matter that those other people didn't believe. There's plenty of us that do. So it's not really a problem unless you love those who don't believe in Jesus, then that still niggles. So how do we understand this parable? Do you understand this parable? Back to Paul. Paul admits that his teenage atheism amounted to not much more than just loving to argue with Christians. It was his favorite pastime when he was 15, 16, 17. And he realized he was reacting to his kind of nominal, nominal faith of his upbringing. And then when he really set out 
in his early 20s to find out what he knew to be true, not just reaction to the faith of his, of his childhood. Paul followed what he loved. After years of camping and hiking with his dad across England and Wales, Paul carried with him a deep love of the natural world. It's where he felt rooted. It's where he felt connected to something bigger than himself. And it was the strength and beauty that he felt in the natural world that he's like, this is true. This is true. And so in his 20s and 30s, he was an environmental activist. He marched and he chained himself to trees and he wrote passionately and he advocated and he... Activism gave his life shape and meaning, grounded in his love of the natural world. Until it didn't quite give the same shape and meaning anymore. Around his 40th birthday, Paul needed something else to ground his life. He said there was something, I was itching for something more. And so he began to follow Zen spiritual practices. Studying the teachings of the Buddha, it was a way of staying connected to the natural world without really having to have a god telling you what to do. And then that still didn't satisfy after a few years. He described wanting something, wanting worship. And and Paul writes, he said, "My, my teenage atheist self would have been horrified. But something was happening to me, slowly, steadily, that I didn't understand, but I could clearly sense. Paul says, I felt like I was being filed gently into a new shape. Now you're thinking, oh, this is where he becomes a Christian. He needs to worship the creator who made the creation, right? No, 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 no. Paul becomes a Wiccan priest. Yeah, he loves the cloak, he loves the woods, he gets to worship a nature goddess and a horned god, but he really loved the nature goddess. This fit, natural world, gave him a place to worship, it worked. And so Paul, joins a coven, wears a cloak, does the rituals, does the initiation, and he's now a full-fledged Wiccan priest. But then Paul started having dreams. Paul dreamed of Jesus. And then Paul started meeting Christians everywhere, which might not be novel for us, Uh, But for a Zen Wiccan priest with a strong distaste for Christians, running into them in his normal everyday life was a little bit out of his ordinary. Strangers would email him out of the blue about faith, questions asking him. Uh, Priests were coming to him about help with their writing. Friends that he never knew were Christian before started openly talking about their faith. Paul didn't like any of this. (laughs) He wanted it all to stop. He quite liked his edgy spirituality, and he did not need that dusty sermon from that vicar he rejected in his teenage years. He wanted it to stop. He kept running away. 
And it did. It's just not in the way that he could ever have imagined. Paul describes one evening, I was sitting in the kitchen of the house in which our coven had its temple, and we were about to go in and conduct an important ritual. And as we got up to leave, I felt violently ill. I was dizzy. I was sick. I was lightheaded. Everyone noticed and fussed over me as I sat down, my face pale. I had an overpowering, overpowering feeling that I should not go into the temple. I felt I was being physically prevented from doing it. Someone had staged an intervention, he said. Dreams of Jesus speaking to him, of, of followers of Jesus just showing up in his life. And then the experience of the actual resistance of the Spirit keeping him from a coven temple and worship of a dark God. In the midst of all of this, Paul found himself becoming a Christian, of being nudged and moved to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And eventually this man, who had been a teenage atheist scribbling words from Satan in a church guest book, an environmental activist, a Zen Buddhist, and a Wiccan priest dancing in the woods, was baptized in a freezing stream in Ireland in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How do we understand this parable? How do we understand this parable of how some believe in Jesus and others don't, the timing it of all and how it works? As I've wrestled with it this week, thinking also of those I love who don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, I wonder if we fail to understand this parable when we restrict it to a one-time thing. As if this parable only applies to those who aren't Christians yet. And if it does only apply to those who aren't Christians yet, then we kind of think it's just, you get one chance. <laughs> you get one chance to respond, and you had better mean it when that seed comes. I think we make the same mistake the disciples did. We're so focused on trying to figure out the riddle, to figure out the formula, to figure out how this works the way it works, that we forget to look at the one telling the parable. On a shore of a lake with a crowd gathered, people plotting to kill him, his own family not quite believing him, his disciples not understanding, Jesus speaks the word, teaching and teaching more, staying present with those who simply don't understand, sowing words of hope and truth and invitation and instruction again and again and again. 
And the journey of faith that took Paul Kingsnorth through his crazy journey, Jesus didn't give up on him when that seed didn't take in his teenage years. Instead, Jesus continued to speak to him again and again and again through friends and strangers, through nature and through dreams, sowing seeds all over his life, over the rocky path of his atheism, the shallow soil of his dabbling with religion, even one like Wiccan priest cult, and then in the rich soil where the seed could finally take root and go deep and grow. This parable is not a diagnostic tool for why some don't believe. It is a story pointing us to the one telling the parable. The one who is the word made flesh in an unbelieving world. The one who loves us and sticks with us and speaks to us even when we don't understand. The one who continues to teach and to speak and to reach out to a world and a people who would much rather not listen. Jesus is the one who sows seeds of hope and encouragement and invitation all over our lives. In all kinds of soil and in all seasons of our life of faith. Jesus draws on the prophet Isaiah to give a glimpse of why he speaks in parables. And it's a hard word. But Isaiah also offers this, which is at the background of this parable. This is God speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but my word will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Jesus is the one who sows seeds of hope and encouragement and invitation all over our lives. No matter what kind of soil we currently are at the moment. And that word does not return to him empty. It accomplishes, it accomplishes what he desires. In our lives, in the lives of those we love. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Jesus, you are who you say you are. 
And there's so much that we don't understand. <laughs> there, there's so much that I know you stop and say, please, do you not understand this? But we come before you with trust. We come before you knowing that you are, you are the one who pursues us and loves us, who keeps speaking into our lives until we're able to hear your voice, turn around and respond. So in all the ways in which you are faithful in our lives, we pray and lift up those that we love who don't know you yet or push away from you or walk away from you with a shrug. We hold them up before you, trusting that you are the one who sows seeds in all kinds of soil. In the name of our Lord and Savior, amen.